0: So we're here at the Dharmate Stupa. And just I'll repeat what I was saying. The, The Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, when the Buddha arrived at Isipatana and met the five monks, the five ascetics, they were skeptical. Um, they said, you know, here comes Gautama, that guy who gave up the holy life and look at him, he's fat and got his color back. And they said they weren't going to pay respect to him, but in the end they couldn't help themselves, but they were still rude until the Buddha asked them, you know, look. Have I ever spoken this way before? Have I ever claimed omniscience and and perfect enlightenment before? And said, No hetang bante, something like that, which is, then they use the word bante. No, indeed, venerable sir. And then he said, Now listen, I have something to tell you. And I think the legend goes, so that was the thing where they met him there and he brought them here to teach them, something like that. And then he taught the Dhamma Sutta. It's called the Dhamma Sutta. What that means, Pawatana means the turning. Chaka is a wheel and Dhamma is the Dhamma. So the Dhamma wheel, the turning of the Dhamma wheel is what it's called. So it was given that name afterwards, of course. It doesn't relate to the actual teaching in the Sutta. It relates to the significance of it that this was the moment where a teaching was actually given that caused someone to become a, a sotapanna for the first time to to realize, to have a real release where they became free from suffering And I think it's fair to say that the Dhamma Chakapavatna Sutta is separated into two parts and I think it, it's easy to see that because of who his audience was. And you could also generalize to say it was the accepted wisdom on the spiritual life, the way that was. So it may not have been just for the monks, the five monks, but it does seem that the actual turning of the Dhamma was in the second part of the sutta. Because the Buddha begins by talking about the middle way, and this has come to gain a lot of significance in buddhism we talk about the buddha teaching the middle way but honestly you you don't see the buddha stressing the middle way that often so it does appear to be something directed particularly at this wrong this specific wrong view that because they knew that engaging in sensuality was wrong then then obviously the complete opposite of of seeking out pain is got to be right I mean not actually that obviously but, but understandably why you would think that especially if you're ignorant and unenlightened which is really a part of the problem, it's quite simplistic to think oh okay well if indulgence is oh, is bad then the opposite should be the way to go you see that even in the world I think you could point to a lot of the um, not religious but, but secular uh, devoting oneself to work, devoting oneself to some even secular ambition as a means of, of directing one's energies and you end up getting very stressed but you have a sense that it's right, right? business people often do, They're, they are successful and I think you could argue that to some extent there's a lot of other reasons why that's wrong, but to some extent that's self-torture. Where you you say, you know, I know being lazy and indulgent and all these people who just live for sensuality, I know they've got it wrong, but I've got it right. Because look what I'm doing you make up all these stories that you tell yourself about why what you're doing is somehow better. So the religious um, form of that was the actual explicit torture that you'll see if you ever watch the movie The Little Buddha some of you I know have where they actually show some of that Um, but it's in the scriptures, this is in the ancient texts where they talk about lying on bed of nails, that was a common thing Um, standing on one leg not eating and the Buddha tried all of these things and that's what he was doing for six years and what eventually he came to was that he was he, he couldn't go any further without killing himself. He, he he pushed it to the extent where he said if I were to continue, not even push hard right on thing, but just if I don't stop what I'm doing, I will die. I will die. And and that in and of itself isn't the nail and the final last nail in the coffin, but what really drove it home was I will die, and to this point I have gained zero wisdom I have gone no, not one step closer to understanding reality, or how he would put it, to finding the deathless, to getting beyond old age sickness and death that's the real point, and it's uh, something that I think if you if you put some thought into it you can see how a lot of religious practice is like that, even Buddhist practice So we're often hard in our tradition on people who practice a lot of samatha and, and I think to some extent it's a fair criticism of some people who practice even samatha meditation for a long time and it's quite comfortable and pleasant but don't ever go further than that and uh, no wisdom comes from it um, if you go even further, of course, and, and, and more glaring, is in other religions that value faith or value ritual. And this was certainly the case in the time of the Buddha. A lot of people valued their rituals but didn't gain anything from it. Right? This whole idea of purification that we would have seen in, in Varanasi, Um, purification by bathing in the river Ganga or bathing they go all the way up to the source of the Ganga river and that would lead to purification I mean, does it purify, does it not purify is is such a meaningless question because the result, the reality is that you're no less angry, no less greedy, no less deluded than before you bathed in the river Ganga it was something I said to this uh, woman who was asking about Christianity. I, I said, and and it, there's a story in the Jataka where Saka, who is the, basically the Buddhist equivalent of some sort of god, came down and, and said, wow, you're really, it was this dark skinned, the Bodhisattva was, it's called the Kanha Jataka, the, the black Jataka, so he's a black skinned man. And Saka Isaka really gets a feeling that this guy is really uh, practicing quite powerfully. So he comes down and he he's going to try to shake him a little bit and he says, Oh, here's this black man and this is black and I don't like black and something like that. And basically insulting him that he's black. <laughs> and his reply is something to the effect of, you know, black is indeed black because of course black and white have this symbolism and in fact nobody has black skin it's just it looks darker so you call it black but but he says black is not of course in skin black is indeed and and based on the wisdom is like oh, okay that's you know you've kind of passed the test and he says i really appreciate you and i want to give you a a, a boon you know a wish what, what would you wish and he says his wish he says i wish that no one should be harmed by me I wish that I should be have no hatred for any being, and it's quite beautiful if you read the verses. But the point that relates to to what we're talking, what I'm talking about, um, is that the. The, the, the thrust of many of these religions is is completely meaningless and useless. You can't get out of them what's really important. You can ask God for anything, but the question is, can God give you this? Can God make you so you have no anger? Some, I think, religious people would say that, yes, with faith it helps, but we know as Buddhists that that's very superficial and kind of just a useful, temporary repression of your hatred and, and delusion and so on and that to really free yourself from these has to go deeper Certainly you can't just say, please God, let me not be angry, let me not be lustful You know, if that were the case then all these priests, I bet they do try to pray away their their, their pedophilia I bet many of them do Even though we say these are evil, evil people, that they really do, many of them, you know, feel guilty because it's very hard to be an evil, evil person and not feel some guilt some of them probably don't, they're too far gone, but the prayers don't work, and, and we see that in, in also in Buddhist circles, that just praying to the Buddha and doing chanting well, 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 being a good thing is too basic and too shallow. So, getting back to the sutta, the Buddha pointed out this prevalent dichotomy that absolutely, there were many people who were engaged in base, useless practices of indulgence and sensuality, and that's wrong. He called he's called it hino gamo, poto potojaniko. This indulgence and sensuality. Hina means inferior. Gama gama relates to the gama. The gama is the village, so gamo means it's the way of the villagers. And the third is potujaniko. Potujaniko means the way of a putujana. Jana is a person. Putu means full, I think. But it means... Putujana is a Buddhist word that... I think it's just a Buddhist word that means someone who is full of defilements. That's how the etymology goes. I'm not sure what it originally meant, but we use it to mean someone who is full of defilements a worldling is how it's often translated so th- absolutely there were people who were doing doing that and it was absolutely hina, inferior and it didn't lead to anything special gama, it's just the way of people who don't really have any sense of right or wrong and potujanika, it's the way of uh, the way of ordinary people so it's not necessarily evil it's just, because you remember he's talking to ascetics so he's saying, he's telling them something they can agree with like yeah this is the way of worldly people and then he says but there's this other way and that's the torturing of oneself yoga yoga meaning getting uh, caught up in or, or, or dedicating oneself to uh, atta means the self, gīlāmatāna, the, the state of making oneself suffer And he said, this also, it's different, the words he used are different Dukkho causes suffering, I mean that's really the ridiculous part, right? Like how could this possibly be useful? The, the, the result is explicitly pain, you know? Dukkho ānaryo Anarya, it's not the way of the Arya. And this would have been a word they'd be familiar with this idea of an Arya, someone who is uh, noble. Anatta Sanghito, useless. Atta means use or meaning or purpose, benefit. Sanghita means just connected with. Anatta Sanghita means not connected with any benefit. And he said these two extremes. Someone who has gone forth. Pabajitaina Nasevita should not engage in at all. Dwe me anta na And and one other point that's made explicit here, na sevitabha they should not be engaged in or or partaken of is that sometimes people say, well, moderation, right? You hear the middle way being moderation. In this sense, and really in every, in most senses where the Buddha used, talked about something called the Majjima Patibhada, the middle way, it didn't mean anything like moderation. It was absolutely not engaging in either. And so the middle way is like a razor's edge to some extent. And it's not exactly because it's more like the, the default in a sense. You know the problem isn't what we aren't capable of, the problem is what we are capable of, what we are inclined towards. We're inclined in both those directions. And once you give up those inclinations, what you have is something very pure and very simple, very peaceful. So that's the first part of the sutta. He says, having given up these two, the Buddha has found the middle way majjimā patipadā tathagatena abhisam Buddha. that leads to wisdom, that leads to light You should read the sutta, everyone should read it, it's one of the core suttas And then he says, what is that middle way? It's the Eightfold Noble Path Now I think you have to cut it there and say that's the first part Because then he, he, he switches gears, in a sense And, and turns the wheel of Dhamma and by and turning the wheel of Dhamma, what does that mean? It means teaching the Four Noble Truths. Now, the, the middle way is the Fourth Noble Truth, right? So he's, he's going to be, repeat, he actually repeats himself. Um, but it's the framing of it, I think. Now he's going to frame his teachings around the Four Noble Truths and, and emphasize that as the framework. And that's important because that is the essence of Buddhism. You'll often hear that. People say, what are the core teachings of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths? It really is true. And I think a problem often lies in how they're taught. You know, you read What the Buddha Taught, that famous book, and he says, I think he says, the Buddha taught that life is suffering, or the First Noble Truth and that's of course not what the First Noble Truth is. So the next part of the sutta, he says, I'm going to forget the Pali, but he he says these, there are these Four Noble Truths and katame uh, cattaro no, how does it go? no, he doesn't even say it like that, I don't think it's idang bikwe ik idang dukkang ariyasachang time bikwe. there is this Noble Truth of Suffering And so he just launches in to tell the Four Noble Truths. But what a lot of people don't ever hear and don't ever realize is that it's actually not a fourfold teaching. That's not the extent of it. And that's not how he presents it. I think he goes first by telling the Four Noble Truths. Right? What is it? This is the. Yes, that's right. The first part is. The first, the first noble truth is that jāti birth is suffering, old age is suffering, death is suffering, um, sorrow, lamentation and despair are suffering. So he outlines some of the ways that we suffer. I mean, these are simple truths. Um, but. What's profound even there is how he's making that the essence of his religion, right? It's kind of like a... and that's why people, I think even the Buddha refers to himself as a physician Because it's kind of like that, it's very clinical And it's not to say that other religions don't talk about relieving suffering and finding happiness I think of course to some extent they do, it, but this is the core of of buddhism it's not god it's not faith it's not ritual or anything no. it's suffering and he describes what it is and then he says something that i think is also very profound that we always have to remember is that at the core the five aggregates of clinging are suffering and that's going to relate to the second noble truth of course second noble truth is the cause of suffering what is the cause of suffering it's tan ya yang tan That craving, that thirst that leads to further becoming. And that's becoming in terms of being reborn. It's also, you could say, becoming in terms of just doing things. You know, ambition leads you to take out a loan to get a job, to start a business or so on, or to get a car or whatever. Ambition is what leads us to get married, to have kids, and so on. It's creating something creating entanglement, getting the the way that we get caught up in the world and and build things for ourselves. Because that's the cause of suffering because it leads, of course, to busyness and, and entanglement. Mostly it leads to the entanglement of needing to get it, right, and then not getting what you want. So where he says, not getting what you want is suffering, getting what you don't want is suffering, and so on. The third noble truth is the cessation of suffering So with the cessation of craving, then there comes the cessation of suffering which is important because it's different from saying um, here's suffering and if you can just avoid all those things or find a way to not have any of those things then you don't suffer and that's not the point of it all of those things are suffering because of your craving for them because of your craving for for not getting them you're craving for something else you're craving for things to be a certain way The fourth noble truth is, again, the path and it's basically saying how do you uh, how do you arrive at this state of being free from suffering, which is of course the Eightfold Noble Path But then he goes into what I was getting at this idea that it's more than just a fourfold teaching He says, the first thing the first thing that was important about the Dhamma that the Buddha realized is that there is suffering or or just this this understanding of suffering but then he says two more things about it and so actually it's a 12-fold teaching First he says realization of this truth is is, is an essential part of the path The the second part is what we call the kitcha. Kitcha just means something you have to do. It comes from the root kar, which relates to karma, which means an action, right? So kitcha is something, some action that should be done. So kitcha, what should you do in it, in regards to it? And this is something that many of you have probably heard me talk about, and something that has to be stressed, that it's not about running away from suffering or escaping suffering. What are you supposed to do in regards to suffering? You're supposed to see, uh, understand completely. Pari nyaya. Pari is, you know, parinibana. Pari means like, it actually means like a, a circle, it's like a round like fully, you know, all, from all angles kind of thing Nyaya just means should be known So dukkha, sh- suffering should be known from all angles or known completely just understood thoroughly and, and fully understood and the third part is, well, just a um, uh, transformation of that into having done, so it's the katta. Katta is once you have done the kitcha. Kata means an action that has been performed, so done. Uh, and that's once it is done, parinyata. Once he had realized that he had understood completely suffering, then he had done what needs to be done in regards to that. And each of the Four Noble Truths is set out in this way. So there's the truth itself, the kiccha, and the katta. If you want to say it, there's just two things. There's the the truth and what you have to do about it. But knowing those two things, of course, is not enough. The third one, you have to actually have done it. Right? Which, which is important if you, you know, we have to criticize, of course, uh, the propensity to be content with Knowing with, with studying, you know. Oh, I know the Four Noble Truths, and it's 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 remarkable how often we gloss over uh, the teachings. You know, want to hear about the Four Noble Truths? Oh, I know the Four Noble Truths. Unless you're an arahant, you don't really know the Four Noble Truths, and that's an important point to make. So, katha, you have to actually have done the work. And in regards to suffering, you can't stress enough how important it is to align yourself with the fact that the the kitcha is to know it completely that's what we do with suffering and that's why mindfulness is so essential what is the function of mindfulness? to confront not run away, not try and fix, not get caught up in, to confront it's called um, abhimukha visayabhimukha the manifestation of, of mindfulness is to confront the uh, our experiences the second noble truth the kitcha what has to be done is it has to be abandoned and that relates back to the first noble truth the point being once you confront experiences without reacting to them the craving is has no has no hold. Right? It just you can't it can't take root because you're you have a pure state of consciousness. That's why our focus is on purity. It's on a pure state of mind, which is momentary. Like right now, having a pure awareness of the feeling of the air around you and the hard ground, the sounds, the sights, the smells. In those moments, there is a purity, and we try and build that, as a, cultivate that, as our our state of mind. And that becomes strong. There is a an inclination, like we were leaning in this direction. Suddenly, we're leaning in this direction, and we're able to eventually fall in the right direction, which is away from suffering. The third. Noble Truth, the Kitcha is the third noble truth being the cessation of suffering. The the Kitcha, what we have to do is we have to see it for ourselves. Sachi Kataba. Sachi Kataba is an interesting word. I think it means uh, Kataba. Kataba is again karma. So you have to make it Sa Achi, which I think means with your own eyes, literally. Um, and, and that relates back to this idea of vipassana. Vipassana means seeing, so it's this metaphoric or yeah, metaphorical seeing. It's not with your eyes, of course, but it's related to how you would see something instead of just believing it. I mean, it's just emphasizing the fact that you have to experience it for yourself. But uh, it, it does drive home that point that there's a difference between knowing intellectually and having this idea, yeah I know the Four Noble Truths and look at how it's freed me from suffering so I've realized the Four Noble Truths it's just that knowledge but the Third Noble Truth is yes, to be realized for yourself The Fourth Noble Truth of course the kitcha is baweitaba. it should be developed so we develop the Eightfold Noble Path it provides another very staple important core part of the Buddhist teaching. I mean, it's the fourth noble truth, but it's also a very beautiful and and often cited um, core description of what Buddhism is. It it covers all the bases in a way. You have right view, right thought, right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And if you put all those together, once they become all well-developed and working in in, uh, coordination, working working together, then you free yourself from suffering. So that's the second part of the sutta. The, The last thing he says in the sutta is that until he realized the Four Noble Truths with these three parts, so this twelve Sakara, the, the making it into twelve I didn't say I was uh, a Buddha But once I realized these noble uh, truths with their three parts Meaning he had actually done what needs to be done in regards to all four Then I said among all beings in the world That I was a Buddha And when he said that All the angels, the rest of the sutta is describing how all the angels responded by saying the Buddha had Turned the wheel of Dhamma that will never be unturned, cannot be unturned by any Deva or Brahma or Mara And that's an important part of the symbolism of the turning the wheel because it's an inexorable turning It's not something that you can turn back, appati vati yang, cannot be, should never, could never be turned back at that point, Kundanya, when he was, remember these five, and the one of them was Kundanya, who was the one person at the Buddha's birth who held up one finger. Everybody else was two fingers. He held up one finger, and one finger, and said, "He will definitely become a Buddha." So he actually was more confident than the others. That's kind of the idea. The other thing about Kundanya is apparently he was him and Subhadda were brothers in a past life. Now Subhadda was the last person to become enlightened under the Buddha's teaching, under the Buddha's actual direct guidance. So before the Buddha passed in the Parinibbana, he taught Subhadda. Kondanya was the first person, and they in the past life were brothers, and they decided to give a gift to the to a Buddha or a Pacheka Buddha or something, I think a Buddha actually. And Kondanya said, let's give the first rice that we harvest. Young rice, and his older brother said, his other brother said, "What are you crazy? Nobody gives that You have to wait until the the rice is fully developed, and then you give that as a gift, but he was so he wanted to give right away, and he said, Well, then we'll cut the field in half and you give whatever you want from yours and so Kundanya gave y- young rice to the Buddha, and Subada waited until it was very well developed and then he gave the 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 dra- the it was good rice, but it was the fully developed rice grains Cooked them up, I guess, and gave them to the Buddha As a result of those two karmas One of them was the first person to understand the Buddha's teaching And one of them was the last That's the story But kundanya, it says in the sutta that At that moment, when the Buddha was teaching There arose in kundanya the dhamma No, the jamma-chaku, sorry Chaku is not chaka chaka means wheel chaku means eye the eye of dhamma kinchi samudaya dhamma sabantang ni roda dhamma and that's the, the the key point here kinchi samudaya dhamma whatever dhamma arises sabantang ni roda dhamma whatever is of a nature to arise all of that is of a nature to cease that's a, a, a description of the, the realization of nibbana and it's it's that's what we call it cessation, because there is an experience uh, that is complete and utter cessation of experience. I think you could say the orthodox way of explaining it would be complete and utter cessation of suffering. And he had that experience, and because it's so profound, it's considered to be the the breach, or the, the the switch between a Putujana and an Arya, Pugala So at that point he was a Sotapanna And the Buddha looked at him and said Anyasi vatabho kondanya Anyasi vatabho kondanya Oh kondanya, you see Anyasi Anyasi means Anyasi? Anyasi, you know not see you, you you, know now, you now know, or you have come to know. Ah, kondanya you have come to know. And so he was, from that point on, known as Anyasi... Anyasi... Anyasi kondanya, no, what was he called? Anya kondanya, anya kondanya, kondanya who knows. He was given a second name, kondanya who knows. I don't know how much time we have How much, how are we doing on battery? Does that thing have a battery? Careful 66% Okay, we got lots of it. Well, how's it what time is it? 10 o'clock 10 o'clock, okay, we're going to be eating at 11, so um, There's much more to teach And I think it all should come now No? Let me see Right One more thing that should be taught and I won't go into too much detail, because I think we should do some meditation before lunch, right? Um, is that Kondanya became a Sotapanna and then um, he and the Buddha went out for alms and they left the other four monks at the monastery to, do medit- to, to practice and they came back and brought food for the, the rest of them and the Buddha, meanwhile, taught the others, and every day he was teaching all of them, until all five of them, day by day, five days later, became sotapanna. And once they were all sotapanna, then he taught what is called the Anatta Lakana Sutta. Anatta means, of course, non-self. And so then he taught and tried to help them see this idea that nothing has a core, that that our way of looking at things as being entities, a bag here, a hand, a fist, and so on, is conceptual, and that a much more real way of looking at things and the deeper reality is that things don't have a core, that there is no self, no soul in anything, that that reality doesn't admit of such concepts, that reality is based on experience, and so it's this sort of change in perception, in worldview, in your paradigm where you start to see things just as being experientially based But I don't think I will teach the Dhamma, uh, Anatalakana Sutta Maybe if you guys want we can do it in the van tomorrow or something We can talk about it What I'd like to do rather is I mean, basically, I'll give you the the synopsis. The five aggregates are non-self. There we go. Why are they non-self? Because you can't control them, because they don't have any substance and so on. They're impermanent. And that's all. And I think what we should do now before lunch is we can do walking, we can do sitting, you can do as you like, and Maybe we can do walking around the pagoda if you like. That can that can be a sort of a walking meditation, and then come back here and do sitting, and then we'll go for lunch. But this is the place, 2,500 and some years ago, where the Buddha taught the Dhamma, and and the the sky opened up apparently, and and you could see hell and you could see heaven, and everybody was saying. Here's the Buddha, the Buddha has taught, turn the wheel of Dhamma, okay? So you can stop that and we'll go on to do some meditation.